Welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Sean Little, and I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City. Well, we're in week two of our annual City Church at the Movies series. In this series, we look at films that have received an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. Speaking from the intersection of our culture and the gospel, lead pastor Jeff Kincaid focuses in on the film, Hell or High Water. As Sean said earlier, uh, welcome to City Church. If you're new here, every year around this time, we deviate from our norm of biblical expositional uh, preaching to do a series that we call City Church at the Movies. And in this series, we take three movies that were nominated for Best Picture at this past year's Academy Awards, and we examine one of them each week. The three that we've chosen this year are Lion, I did that last week, Hell or High Water, which we're going to talk about today, and the next week, Sean Little is going to look at La La Land. Now, as I said last week, if you're new here, you might be wondering, why would you do something like that? Why take three weeks out of the year to examine movies? Well, I want you to listen to this. Craig Detweiler is a theologian. He's a filmmaker. He's a professor of communication at Pepperdine University. And I want you to listen to what he says. He says, the most timely, relevant, and haunting films resonate with the shaping story of Scripture. From the beauty of creation, through the tragedy of self-destruction, to the wonder of restoration. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying that the gospel is the universal redemption story of which any given movie is a particular redemptive story. In other words, every movie, whether it knows it or not, you see, is patterning itself after the story of the gospel, which means this, that almost any movie can be a starting point for sharing the gospel. And so the purpose behind this series is not just to examine the movies themselves, but to show how they imitate the gospel story, and then to teach you how you can use movies to begin conversations with others about the gospel, all right? Now, with all of that said, I want us to start by taking a look at the trailer for our movie today, Hell or High Water. What? How many of you have seen this movie? Raise your hand. It's a fantastic movie. I don't know if you guys liked it or not. I absolutely love this movie, not in the same way that I love, say, uh, Braveheart a number of years ago or Finding Nemo or something like that because Hell or High Water is a very different kind of movie. This is one of the movies, this is one of those movies that leaves you thinking long after the movie is over. It doesn't shy away from the complexities of life in a fallen world where what's right and wrong are not always clear and where you aren't entirely certain who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. From the very beginning of the movie, and I mean like in the very first few frames, in the, in the first seconds of the movie, there's a deep grief that permeates this film. Scrawled across the side of an old bank building wall, someone has spray-painted spray in graffiti. Three years in Iraq, but no bailout for people like us. And the rest of the movie is filled with reminders that hell and high water has already come, and for all intents and purposes, it's wiped out a way of life for people living in rural, dusty, small towns in West Texas. The only thing that's well-maintained in these 
rundown Texas tumbleweed towns are the billboards lining the roads from one ghost town to another, offering payday loans and debt relief. Everybody is in a bind in these communities. And the brutal environment in which they live offers no respite at all. And I will tell you, living in Texas for as long as I did, I traveled through many of those West Texas towns, and I can assure you that the depiction of those towns in this movie are not exaggerated by much, if any at all. The movie begins with two men in masks robbing a bank. We don't know the men. We don't know the bank. We don't know why they're robbing the bank. It's as if the movie starts in the middle of a, of a longer story. And this is one of the terrific things about this movie. The details slowly unfurl without any heavy-handed explanation, as they would, like if you were to meet someone for the first time, and then you slowly but surely learn their backstory as you build a relationship with them. That's how things unfurl in this movie. It turns out that the two bank robbers are brothers, Toby and Tanner Howard. And this is the first in a string of bank robberies that they will commit over the course of a week. Theirs is a sad story. Tanner, who uh, is absolutely played brilliantly by Ben Foster, is the older of the two. He's been out of jail for just a year, having served a lengthy sentence for killing their abusive father. Tanner is wild. Tanner's hot-headed. He loves the risk and the adventure of robbing banks. His younger brother, Toby who is played by Chris Pines, who just, like, does, he's not, you know, he's just awesome in this movie. Uh, Toby is quiet. He's more thoughtful, smarter, perhaps. And until her death just three months ago, he was caring for their mother in her last months of life. Toby comes off in this movie as kind of a good man who's gone bad. We gradually learn that the bank that they're robbing is a branch of Texas Midland Banks, which is about to foreclose on the farm that has been in their family for generations. And while the action that the bank is taking is technically legal, the manner in which it is going about foreclosing on their farm is very, very shady. Now, why does the bank want this farm in this dry Texas tumbleweed town? Why do they want that farm so much? Well, here's the deal. Toby just discovered, and of course the bank knows it, that it is sitting on a fortune in oil. In order to save the farm from foreclosure, the brothers need money they don't have. Toby, all all Toby wants is to be able to provide for his ex-wife and their two sons that he hasn't been around for. And so he puts together this ingenious plan to rob small-town banks until he's got enough money to pay his overdue child support and to pay the back taxes that are owed on this property. He also wants to put the farm into a trust for his two sons as a way of protecting their future um, that he hasn't been there for in the past. Now, while the two brothers are robbing banks... A Texas Ranger named Marcus Hamilton, who's played by Jeff Bridges, uh, and Jeff Bridges is fantastic in this movie too. Um, Marcus Hamilton and his longtime part Native American partner are trying to catch these guys, okay, as they're robbing these banks. 
Jeff Bridges' character is widowed, and he's two weeks away from being forced into retirement. And as their partnership is finally coming to a close, Bridges is, Jeff Bridges' character is reluctant to let go, partly because his whole identity is, has been built around being a lawman, but also because he has no personal life to go home to anymore. And so the job provides him with friendship and with companionship. Now, the film structure is really uh, very simple. All the way through the movie, it mirrors these two pairs of men. Two brothers who are bank robbers and two men who are cops. And it alternates between the pairs as they banter through violent and then sometimes uh, humorous chaos. Now, there's so much good stuff to talk about from this movie, like the uh, delicious irony in the movie. Like, for instance, this is funny. The banks that the brothers rob are only, the only banks that they rob are the branches of Texas Midlands banks, the very bank that's foreclosing on their property. They're going to repay what they owe the bank with the bank's own money. That's one of the ironies in the movie. There's another one. And it has to do with the prominence of Native Americans in this movie. The way the brothers clean the money that they've stolen is that they take the money to casinos just across the border in Oklahoma. And who do you think owns and runs those casinos? Native American. And this, of course, is, is no accident. Okay? Jeff Bridges' partner is also part Native American. And at one point in the movie, during a kind of philosophical conversation between the two uh, Texas Rangers, Jeff Bridges' partner points out that 150 years ago, all of this land was his ancestors' land, and then white people stole it from them. And he just makes the point that now the banks are taking this land away from white people. Hmm. Hmm. There's so many things that we could talk about in this movie. But I, I really want to focus on two things this morning that I think are very clearly illustrated in this movie. Actually, I guess I should say it this way, that once you see the movie and once you think it through, you can see it clearly, but I think it's subtle on the front end. If you didn't pick this up, don't feel bad. Okay, I watched it a couple times before I could find this. But let me just tell you that the first point I want to make today from this movie is the power of ideas. The power of ideas. And let me explain what I mean in this way. Uh, many years ago, I came to the realization, uh, like many others have, that ideas drive the world. And hear me on this. Most of us have no awareness of the ideas that shape our world. For instance, Karl Marx had some ideas about politics and the economy. It was called communism. And communism held millions under its sway for the better part of the 20th century. In fact, over a billion Chinese are still under that ideology. And these ideas not only shape our world, but they control our thought patterns and our behaviors too. For instance, uh, the teenage girl who dresses in black and mutilates her body and listens to music that um, exalts death probably hasn't read any books on the philosophical idea called nihilism but that's exactly what's driving her behavior. 
Millions of Americans today couldn't articulate the philosophical ideas of postmodernism, but it governs their lives. And you can see this same power of an idea very clearly in hell or high water. And let me tell you something. As I said, I didn't really catch this until the second time I watched it. But the first time I watched it, I was confused by something that kept happening a number of times in the movie. In the midst of everything else that's going on, at various points, the camera would intentionally focus on something related to Christianity, like a cross on an old empty church, maybe a couple of crosses on an old church. Any of you remember that? Those of you who saw the movie? You see that? Yeah, it's very subtle, isn't it? Yeah. There's even some dialogue in the movie about Christianity. There's a scene in which there's a televangelist on a TV screen, and Jeff Bridges' Native American partner says that he's Catholic, and he asks Jeff Bridges if he's a Christian, and of course he says no. And the first time I saw it, all of this felt to me like, like it, was, it was a weird insertion into the movie. What does that have to do with anything else in the movie? But the second time around, it finally hit me what all of that was about. And it came through a scene in which uh, Chris Pine's character, Toby, explains why he puts this whole bank robbery plan of his into motion. Listen closely uh, to what he says. I actually think we've got it up on the screen so you can read it. And I want you to pay very close attention to it. He says, I've been poor my whole life. So were my parents and their parents before them. Like a disease passed from generation to generation. And that's what it becomes, a sickness. Infecting, infecting every person you know, but not my boys. Ain't no advice you can give a child these days. No lessons, no love. Nothing that can guarantee they have a chance at life but money. I hate that the world has come to this, but it has. And I dare you to look me in the eye and tell me any different. Now, there are at least three very powerful ideas that are reflected in Toby's monologue. One of them is fatalism. Did you hear it in there? Fatalism is a kind of, it's a kind of resignation or a surrender to the inevitable. He says, this is what the world has come to. I hate it, he said. And so in light, of, in light of the fact that this is what the world has come to, his crime and his violence, well, they're unfortunate in his mind, but they're necessary compromises given that the world he lives in and that he has resigned himself to has become what it's become, right? There's also a philosophical idea called nihilism reflected in Toby's monologue. Nihilism is the idea that there's, that there's no meaning to life and that all religious and moral principles must be rejected. You know, there are no truths that we have to live by. It's interesting to me that the subtitle for this movie is Justice Isn't Always a Crime. And in a world that has no meaning, that has no moral absolutes, it's perfectly fine that Toby resorts to his own kind of justice. That's nihilism. There's also materialism, philosophical materialism reflected in Toby's monologue. Materialism is the idea that, that the only reality in the world is the physical reality, what we can see, what we can touch, you know? And in a world in which there is no spiritual reality, there's only a physical reality, guess what the highest power is in that world? Money. Money. 
And he says that in there. He says, he says the only thing you could, you could give to your kids that will guarantee their future, money, money. There's no, there's, no, there's no spiritual reality in the world. And see, that's, that's it. That's where it is. That's why those crosses are on the dead churches uh, are in the movie. It's why you've got this silly, money-hungry televangelist. It's, it's why you've got this question about whether Jeff Bridges' character is a Christian. What they're saying, what the movie is saying, is that whatever sway Christianity might have had on this part of the world in the past, like the morals, the, the beliefs of Christianity, the idea that there's a, a sovereign and good God in control of the universe, and, and whatever comfort that might have given people in the past, those ideas are dead now. And people in Toby's situation just have to do whatever they have to do to make life work for them in a fatalistic, nihilistic, materialistic world. And you see, that's the power of idea. That's the power of idea. They drive our feelings. They drive our behaviors. They shape us. And they shape the world that we live in. Toby isn't aware, probably, that those ideas are driving him. But they are. They are. And it would be impossible for me to overemphasize this point, the power of ideas. I've mentioned uh, to you guys before, you might even be tired of hearing me say it, but one of my favorite, favorite authors is the late Dallas Willard. He was a, a brilliant philosopher, <clears throat> and he was a man known uh, for his writings as well about Christian spiritual formation. And in this book called Renovation of the Heart, Willard is speaking about evil. And he's speaking about where we see evil at work in our culture. And he says, watch this. He says, make no mistake. The primary strongholds of evil in the world are the idea systems that dominate our world. And he goes on. Christian spiritual formation is inescapably a matter of recognizing in ourselves the idea system or idea systems of evil that govern the present age and the respective culture that constitute life away from God and replacing them with the idea systems that Jesus embodied and taught. Now, 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 Dallas Willard is only reciting what he's learned from the Bible. The Apostle Paul really says the same thing, puts the same emphasis on the ideas that govern our minds. Romans 12, 2, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Look at this, Ephesians 4. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? The renewing of the mind, be made new in the attitude of of your mind. Paul is talking about the ideas in your mind that govern your life, your feelings, your behavior. When we first started this church, <clears throat> I often used the word unlearn, unlearn, as a way of saying 
that it is of primary importance that you replace false ideas that are governing your life with true ideas from the Bible. The problem is that the tragic condition of Western culture today has put away the information about God that God himself has made available for us in the Bible. And this leads, this putting away of God and putting away of the Bible, this leads to the destruction of souls, it leads to the destruction of society, and it leaves people to eternal ruin. I want you to listen again to what Dallas Willard says. Last time, I promise. He says, the gospel of Jesus repudiates all false information about God and therewith about the meaning of human life. And it works to undermine the power of those ideas and images that structure life away from God. And listen to this. The prospering of God's cause on earth depends upon his people thinking well. You need, I need, new information in order to develop new ideas. And that's what Jesus came to do, to give you new ideas about life. That's what the Bible is for, to give you new information, usually, <clears throat> excuse me, usually contrasting information to challenge the ideas and the images that you have learned and that you've adopted about life. And if you aren't regularly taking this in, you can't change. If you aren't regularly taking the Bible in, you can't root out bad ways of thinking. You can't do it any other way. And it's critically important that you do. And here's why. Here's your motivation. The second point I want to make this morning is that not only do ideas have power, but they also have consequences. Now, I'm going to have to be very brief in explaining how we see this played out in this movie because I don't want to ruin the ending of the movie. But, but let me just say this much. The characters in this movie end up paying a steep price for misjudging just how much their moral compromises will cost them. The ideas that governed their lives drive them to some very serious consequences, some of which will haunt them for the rest of their lives. Now, as I said, I can't really, I can't really illustrate this point from the movie itself without giving away the ending. So I want to just illustrate this point that not only do ideas have power, but they have consequences. I want to illustrate that from my own life and and from something that just happened to me actually uh, last night. And I want to give you just a little context for those of you who might not know uh, my backstory, my family's backstory. Uh, My family moved here about five years ago, and the purpose of that move was for me to do ministry here in Evansville. And while it wasn't the original plan, that ultimately took the form of planting City Church. The house we lived in back in Dallas, which is where we were from, um, it was actually in a sleepy little suburb just north of Dallas, kind of the first ring uh, north of Dallas, called Richardson. It was an older community, older homes, they had good schools, and we really liked the area, so we bought there back in 
2000. We sold our home when we moved here in the summer of 2012. Now, just after we sold our home, like just after, like, hear me, just after, a very large corporation moved its headquarters from California to Richardson. And with that, a number of other companies moved there too. Like it became known as the Telecom Corridor in Richardson. And as you can imagine, demand for homes in Richardson just exploded and the prices of homes in Richardson skyrocketed. Last night as we were talking, my wife said this to me. She said, she said do you know if we would have just held on to our house a little longer? Do you know what we could have sold it for? And you know, that's one of those kind of questions that you know is going to make you sick to your stomach. So I courageously said to her, no, I don't, I don't want to know. And she started telling me anyway, and I said, no, 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 I really don't want to know. But one of the occupational hazards of being a pastor is that sometimes you end up feeling convicted about the very sermon that you're going to preach, and that's what happened to me. And so I said to her, I said, okay, tell me. To which she said, no, you said you don't want to know. (laughs) No, seriously, I said, I changed my mind. I really want to know, how much could we have sold our house for if we would have just held on to it a little longer? Over $200,000 more than we paid for it, she said. And I'm going to be honest with you. I threw up in my mouth just a little. And I'm feeling a little queasy now, even as I talk about it, if I'm honest. But here's the thing. If I had Toby's ideas about life, that the ultimate thing in life is money, that that there are no spiritual realities, I wouldn't be able to joke about that. Like, I'd be tormented by that. I'd lose sleep over it. I'd have heartburn over it. I might cry about it. I'd be angry. I'd be resentful about it. But there's an idea that governs my life that goes like this. The cross changes everything. Those crosses in hell or high water remind me that there is more to life than money. That I don't have to be fatalistic about life or nihilistic or materialistic about life. And that the richest man in the universe gave up all of the rights and privileges and adoration and riches of heaven and died a pauper's death for me on a Roman cross, sacrificing his life for mine so that I could have eternal life. And so the cross even changes how I measure wealth, success, meaning in life. Now look, yes, if we had stayed in Dallas, my bank account would be $200,000 better off. But I wouldn't have had you. I wouldn't have had you. And I wouldn't have had the experience of planning this church with you. And seeing the lives that have been changed as a result of moving here exactly when we did. That idea that the cross changes everything makes me able to say that you're worth more to me than a couple hundred thousand dollars. Now listen, I just want to be real with you. There's a very good chance I will vacillate on that over the course of the next 24 hours. Just want to be honest. But I'll come back to it, you know. I can say that I have complete peace about that. And And it's because of an idea that the cross of Christ changes everything. 
Now, there are two things that I want you to walk away with this morning. First, for those of you who believe in Christ, what are the ideas that are governing your life? And those of you who are parents or grandparents, what are the ideas that you're passing down to your children? It is critically important that you make reading and studying the Bible a priority in your life because ideas are powerful and bad ideas have devastating consequences for you, for your children, for your grandchildren. Okay? Second, for those of you who haven't yet come to a place where you have believed in Jesus Christ, okay? like some of you, you know, maybe you've been in church all of your life, but you've never come to a place where you've believed in Jesus Christ. You know, you can sit in a, in a garage all you want, but it won't make you into a car. You can sit in church all you want, and it doesn't make you into a Christian. If you've never come to a place where you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's what I want you to leave with. Jesus Christ died on the cross for an idea. In fact, he was killed for an idea, and that idea was Grace. That the only way that you could ever, that I could ever have eternal life is by God showing you grace. No amount of human goodness could ever earn you eternal life and no amount of human sin could ever disqualify you from receiving grace. And so as a demonstration of God's grace, Christ willingly died for your sins on the cross and for my sins on the cross. Here's an idea that I'd like for you to walk away with today. Here's the idea. How about today? Believe in him. And that starts by acknowledging that you're a sinner. No matter how good you are. You may be sitting here thinking, boy, I'm really, uh, like I am really the cat's meow. And then there are some of you that are like on the other end of the spectrum. I don't deserve God. Sure, none of us do. None of us do. So it begins with acknowledging that you're a sinner and that that you need grace. And believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you as a demonstration of God's grace and that he was raised again from the dead. How about that idea today? Believe in Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Right there in the privacy of your seat, you can make that decision to believe in him, to acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you need a savior. The Bible says that if you do that, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are given a new uh, life, actually. That, In fact, The way it really says it is that life is put in you. Up until now, you've been the walking dead. Once you receive Christ, you become alive. Lord Jesus, today we worship you because you willingly died for an idea. And that idea was grace. We all need it. We thank you so much for it. Lord, I pray that you would convict us about the ideas that govern our lives. And Lord, that you would bring us back to the scriptures, that we would make a habit of reading, studying the Bible. Not just to check off some list, not because if we don't do it, you'll be angry with us. But no, 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 to, re- to replace the ideas in our lives that have been governing our lives. 
And Lord Jesus, for those that are here today that have never come to a place where they believed in you, I pray that in this very moment that your spirit would drive this truth into their hearts, that you would bring them to a place that they could acknowledge their sin before you and know that you will never reject them no matter what it is that they've done. And those who are here that think they're morally, uh, that they're morally qualified for a relationship with God, Lord, convict them too. And cause them to recognize that they too are sinners that need grace. Lord, as a result of that, I pray that you would give them eternal life. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray. Amen. The cross changes everything, even our ideas. What ideas govern your life? And what would your life be like if the main governing idea was this? The one and only God of the universe, author and creator of everything, loves you and values you at the very cost of the life of his son. God desires an eternity with you and for that eternal life to break into your life here and now, giving you abundant life. What an idea. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to the City Church Evansville podcast. We'd love for you to join us next Sunday as we wrap up our At The Movie series looking at the film La La Land. Join us at either 9.15 or 11 a.m. here at 314 Market Street in downtown Evansville.